0: Now, it's time for Modern Money Donuts, with Stephen Hale and Gabrielle Bond.
1: Hello, wherever you are, and welcome to Modern Money Donuts, a podcast series about modern monetary theory and ecological economics. My name is Stephen Hale, and I'm an economist at Modern Money Lab and adjunct associate professor at Torrance University here in Adelaide, South Australia. Not everyone knows exactly where Adelaide is. So maybe we can take a moment to put that right. If we can look at the first slide. You can see Adelaide down there towards the bottom on the right hand side. It's the fifth biggest city in Australia. The bigger ones than us are Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane and Perth. It's the capital of the driest state, South Australia, on the driest continent, Australia, on the planet and very prone to bushfires, especially where I'm sitting at the moment in the Adelaide Hills. Let me introduce my co-host. We can get rid of the slides again. Gabrielle Bond, a former professional musician who has several jobs these days, including being the public officer for Modern Money Lab and organizer of the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group. We'll take a moment to tell you a little bit about those two organizations in a minute. In the latter role, She performed a miracle, she organised what we believe to be the world's largest modern monetary theory conference so far in January 2020, just prior to the pandemic, featuring Stephanie Kelton, Bill Mitchell, Andres Bernal and many others. So Gabby, how did you go from playing the viola in an orchestra and teaching music to being an activist and organiser?
0: Hi Stephen. Well, um, it started actually when I changed the station on my car's radio on on my drive to work. I used to just listen to classical music and be kind of immersed in that world, Um, but there was a time when the main station, Classic FM, it got new management and suddenly everything went all bland and kind of mainstream. So I decided to switch to Radio National, which I guess for US people is a bit like NPR. Um, So one of the first things I heard when I turned on this new station was uh, the climate scientist James Hansen being interviewed by Philip Adams. And I can remember being really shocked that nothing was being done about this existential threat of climate change. And that was probably in about 2010. So pretty soon after that experience, I volunteered at the Greens Party office And then from there, I got an admin job at the Environmental Defender's Office. And this is a community legal centre that specialises in environmental law. Um, I actually still have that job, but it's only one day a week now because of funding cuts. When I started this new career, I, well, I really just wanted to make myself useful. Um, I taught myself how to run events and conferences, how to do fundraising, how to build websites, do basic design and communications, um, look after databases and all that sort of thing. Um, So like in the not-for-profit and environment sector, work tends to be very part-time and short-term. So um, I have ended up moving around quite a bit. I've worked for the Conservation Society of South Australia the Council of Social Service. I had a job at a progressive law firm. I've also worked for the Greens party, but I think one of the most impactful jobs I've had as a campaigner was when I worked for the campaigning group Get Up, which is where I met Stephen and how I got interested in economics. Um, but in answer to your question, like why the career change? I think if you really think about the climate crisis, and you're in a position where you're privileged enough to do so, um, when uh, an opportunity comes up to do some work uh, or to change jobs, I, I really only ask myself one question, and that is, is this the most useful thing I could be doing right now for the future of the planet? And if the answer to that is yes, then I'll say, yes, this is what I'm going to be doing.
1: Well, maybe we can take a look at the second slide and you could tell us about the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group.
0: Sure thing. So here is like a little screen grab of our website, if you can see that. Um, The group is actually named after your book, Stephen. The members chose the name and we have about 25 core active members and 80 semi-regular supporters in this group. And we started the group after the 2020 MMT conference that you talked about before, Um, and that conference was also called the Sustainable Prosperity Conference. So uh, the two words, sustainable prosperity, those words capture what we're trying to achieve, I think, providing everyone with a good life without overstepping planetary boundaries. Um, and we're called an action group because we're campaigners for the most part and not academics, although some academics are, are in our, amongst our members. Um, we try to keep our meetings short and get on with doing things that have an impact. So mostly what we do is we educate people via running talks and events. We also fundraised and sent out around 300 copies of Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth. We sent them to politicians and journalists and all other influential Influential people that we could think of. And we've trained uh, our members, our amateur members, to go out and give talks on basic MMT um, to other groups. And this year we've got uh, the goal of supporting some of our members and supporters to get elected to local, state, or federal government positions. Um, We're also running an event called The Case for a Job Guarantee. We're doing an online part of it this weekend and we've got the in person part coming up in April. So if you want to check out what else we're doing or what we have done, you can have a look at our website, which is www.sustainable-prosperity.net.au. And that's and in the fact,
1: that's, that's on the slide that people can see at the moment. Maybe we can yeah. have a look at one more slide. Uh-huh. What's your role in Modern Money Lab, Gabby?
0: Okay, so Modern Money Lab is a brand new MMT think tank that we started. Um, its role is to introduce MMT and ecological economics to a different audience, and that is an audience of academics, finance people and policy people, so not so much the activist um, crowd. Um, my role at Modern Money Lab is I'm an organiser, I'm a co-founder, um, but having said that, I'm also like in charge of um, making sure that we comply with our, our charity uh, rules, I uh, manage the website, I run the meetings, I look after the accounts and all sorts of other roles, but hopefully, and when we really get going, we'll have lots of people um, helping out with different things. So if you'd like to check out Modern Money Lab, go to www.modernmoneylab.org.au.
1: Modern Money Lab is working with my uni, Torrens University, on a new project at the moment, Gabby. Can you tell us
0: something about what that is? Sure. So this is really exciting. And it goes back to the question uh, that I sort of asked myself, you know, what is the most useful thing that I can do? And I know you've asked yourself that question too, Stephen. And this project that we're working on is the answer to that question for both of us. Um, We're going to be training a new generation of economists uh, to understand how the world really works, I guess, to train them in MMT and ecological economics and hopefully in five, ten years' time they'll be able to influence governments and decision makers and they'll be in a position to start to break that hold that neoclassical and neoliberal economics has on our current system. So, you know, hopefully we won't have to be uh, late, you know, listening to the economists like Uh, William Nordhaus, who who said four to six degrees of global warming is optimal and that basically nothing that happens indoors will be affected by climate change. I mean, this is ridiculous. So um, we want to change that. So Modern Money Lab has joined forces with Torrens University in Australia to offer these excellent postgraduate courses, and they're going to be taught by Stephen and Phil Lorne and others and we'll be launching that later this year and you can do anything from four subjects as a graduate certificate right through to a master's and phd level um, the courses will be 100 percent online so anyone in the world can participate and if you're wondering you don't have to have a degree in economics to do this in fact we're hoping that there'll be people from all walks of life who enroll because they're interested or because they want to be able to communicate better or maybe they want this to be their career and they want to actually help change the world like we do. So if studying MMT and ecological economics in a serious way in the future is something that you're interested in, please send us an email. We're at info at modernmoneylab.org.au or find us on Twitter or Facebook and we can uh, send us a message and we would love to have a chat with you about it. Anyway, I've talked for a long time, so that's enough about me and Modern Money Lab. Um, let's get back to our podcasts. People will, know, will want to know where the name comes from and what we have planned in the weeks to come.
1: I guess many people listening in know quite a lot about modern monetary theory, or at least know the basics, and the work of people like Warren Mosler and our friend Stephanie Kelton already, not to mention Randall Ray in the US and Bill Mitchell from Australia, and our first guest next week, Fadel Kaboo We'll be talking with a series of MMT economists, and not just the famous ones, as well as activists and others who are associated with modern monetary theory about a whole series of issues, starting with Fidel's guidance on the question of whether there's any conflict between the core message of MMT and environmental sustainability.
0: Um, So what is the core message of MMT, would you say?
1: That the government issues the currency, that the national currency is a public monopoly, that the role of taxation at the federal level is to create a demand for the currency amongst other things, but not to pay for federal spending, that every dollar the government spends and they spend dollars every day is a new dollar. The taxes just delete dollars from the monetary system. They don't pay for anything. And that governments with monetary systems like the American or Australian ones face no purely financial constraints preventing them from pursuing the public interest. As I'm sure everyone knows, that doesn't mean there are no constraints at all. It just means a lack of dollars isn't one of them.
0: So what do you mean by the public interest?
1: That's an issue discussed very well in Stephanie Kelton's The Deficit Myth, which we were mentioning before, alongside the right way to think about federal budgets, the national debt, inflation, trade, and a lot more issues that we're gonna come back to. And of course, it's where modern monetary theory and ecological economics intersect.
0: And can you tell us more about ecological economics?
1: It's an approach to economic issues which recognises that our ultimate real constraint is the natural world of which we're a part and on which we depend for everything. Nearly all economists for almost the whole history of the discipline over the last 250 years have treated nature as something inexhaustible on which we can draw without limit to grow our economies and treated economic growth, any type of economic growth, as the principal goal of economic policy. It was really only in the 1960s that people like Kenneth Boulding and Herman Daly began to point out this doesn't make any sense and is ultimately disastrous. Boulding wrote an article in 1966, which is easy to track down online, and I recommend you to do it because it's a beautiful piece of writing and so prescient, called The Economics of the Coming Spaceship Earth. Pointing out that economists have treated the world as though it was empty, but by then it had become full in the sense that our activities had reached a point where they were having an impact on the planet, which could eventually be destructive. This was reinforced by the famous Limits to Growth report by Donella Meadows and others on behalf of the Club of Rome, which was published in 1972, 50 years ago now. Herman Daly later specified three sustainability principles. To live sustainably, we mustn't emit waste at a rate above that which can be safely absorbed by our environment. Think carbon dioxide emissions. We mustn't use renewable resources faster than they can be renewed. Think about cutting down all the trees or catching all the fish in the sea. And we mustn't use non-renewables faster than we can develop renewable replacements think lithium in batteries. Mm, yeah. A bit more than a decade ago, earth system scientists led by Johan Rockström and Will Steffen at the Stockholm Resilience Centre identified nine planetary boundaries which we need to stay inside if we want to pass on a healthy planet to future generations. Soon after that, Kate Raworth, who is sort of the Stephanie Kelton of ecological economics, or I don't know, maybe Stephanie's the Kate Raworth of MMT mm. combined these planetary boundaries with a dozen indicators of the social foundations for a good quality of life for all based on the UN sustainable development goals in her donut model. Her book, Donut Economics, like Stephanie's was a global bestseller and has been equally influential. Maybe we can have a look at the fourth slide. Can we get the slides up again? There we go. Yeah,
0: there we
1: go. I, know. I love this photo, don't you? Um, on the left-hand side, you can see Kate Raworth, the author of Donut Economics. On the right-hand side, as a lot of people will know, you can see Stephanie, Stephanie Kelton, and in the middle, there's a third brilliant female economist, very important, Mariana Mazzucato. Her book, Mission Economy, that was published last year, we'll talk about a little bit in a few minutes' time. What I really love about this photograph is that the three of them are holding each other's books. So you can see Stephanie holding Donut Economics and Mission Economy, and you can see the other two holding Stephanie's book, The Deficit Myth. And these three books, I mean, we're principally um, going to concentrate in this series on The Deficit Myth and Donut Economics, but these three books really fit together when it comes to building uh, an economics which is fit for purpose for the 21st century and that the, challenge, the challenges that we need to meet. Modern Money Donuts is about using modern money nationally and globally to create a safe and just space for humanity, as Kate calls it in her book, Donut Economics. To give people the best possible chance of having a high quality of life, higher than now for the great majority of people while living within our planetary boundaries. Maybe we can look at the next slide. And As far as planetary boundaries are concerned, clearly we're not doing that at the moment. Um, What you've got on this slide is the iconic picture, the iconic diagram or model from Kate's book, The Donut. Everybody, every country in the world should be looking to locate within the green ring of the donut. Outside this green ring is the ecological ceiling that we need to live within. And as I was saying, the guys at the Stockholm Resilience Centre identified nine crucial planetary boundaries that we need to respect. You can see climate change there. You can see another eight. There are four that we are clearly living outside at the moment that we're gonna come Mm. back to in a moment, one of which is climate change. But if you represent, as Kate did, those, uh, well, as indeed the Stockholm Resilience Centre did, those nine boundaries as a circle that you need to stay within, uh, you can't be at the midpoint of that circle because the midpoint of the circle involves not using any of the Earth's resources at all. And that's a point of destitution and starvation. We need to use some of the Earth's resources in order to provide everybody with the potential of having a good quality of life the social foundations, as it says there, of a regenerative and distributive economy. What we should be aiming for is to provide those social foundations for all. This is the target, this if you like, is the compass for the 21st century. We need to be beyond those social foundations for all, not just in the US and Australia, but everybody around the world. But we need to be within our ecological ceiling, if we're going to be in the safe and just space for humanity, if we're going to be in that very healthy donut, if we're going to create a regenerative and distributive economy. Enough of the slides for the moment, I think. We should have kept carbon dioxide at below 350 parts per million, which is roughly where it was in the mid to late 1980s. We're way past that now, and on the way towards 450 parts per million, which is very dangerous.
0: Mm.
1: Our extinction rates are well above crisis levels. We're adding far too much nitrogen and phosphorus to soils which are degrading. And we've stolen much too much land from ancient forests and natural habitats. You can do this for a while, but not indefinitely. And the longer you stay outside those planetary boundaries, the harder it gets to move back inside them again. That's where we are at the moment. Sadly, we've done this without the benefits of this extractive growth flowing to the mass of the world's population. This is perhaps best shown by looking at work done by researchers at the University of Leeds, most notably Dan O'Neill, who've adapted Kate's Donut to allow for the limitations of comparable data drawn from individual countries. Maybe we can look at the sixth Yeah,
0: should we get that one?
1: If we can. There you are. It's a little bit more difficult to see this one. It's got more data on it. You've got those biophysical boundaries, as they're described in this slide, our planetary boundaries along the bottom, and you've got the social thresholds. You've got the inner ring of the donut, basically, along the left-hand side there. To be a developed economy, you need to be providing all the elements of the minimum social thresholds while not transgressing the biophysical boundaries. In other words, you need the economy to be sitting in the top left-hand corner of this diagram. But what the guys at Leeds University have shown is that you can divide countries up into three rough groups. Those with the capacity to provide the social foundations of a good life, but which are outside planetary boundaries. And you can see that's the top right-hand oval here, The USA and Australia, that's right, right. we sit in that oval. The circle for the US is much bigger than that for Australia because of course the US has a bigger population. We have the wherewithal to provide a good quality of life for all. The fact that we're not doing so is to do with distribution. It's not to do with the scale of our economic activity. Those other countries that are inside planetary boundaries that are not adding to our ecological deficits but are not providing the social foundations people need for a good quality of life. And you can see India and Pakistan and Indonesia and Bangladesh and the Philippines in there. And those which are outside planetary boundaries, even though they're not providing the social foundations for a good quality of life rule either. And you can see Malaysia, Russia, Turkey, South Africa in there. The big problem for the 21st century is that there are, as I was just saying, no countries at all in the ring of Kate Rower's donor. There are none at the moment in the top left hand corner. If that's the definition of a developed economy, there are currently no developed economies. We're all developing. We all know where we need to get to, but there's nobody there at the moment. Mm. I'm not saying that every country should define the same minimum requirements for a decent standard of living. But all should have a panel of indicators to aim for. We do need to have national targets not just for carbon emissions but for every identifiable planetary boundary that we were just talking about. Climate change, as the anthropologist Jason Hickel says in his book Less Is More, is just like the loose thread of an unrev- unravelling cardigan.
0: Yeah.
1: If we get global warming wrong then our Um, biodiversity crisis is going to get even worse. The planetary boundaries are linked together. And let's not forget who caused this problem and who's benefited from the global growth machine of capitalism, which has driven us past our planetary boundaries in the first place. It's great to have this slide up here. On the left hand (coughs) side, you can see what's happened to world output, to GDP, since uh, about 200 years ago. And it's easy to see, even though it's a small diagram, it's easy to see there's been a great acceleration from about 1950 onwards. Between 1950 and the 1970s, the benefits of this growth were widespread. Newly uh, independent countries were getting on with providing people with uh, food security and access to education and healthcare. And in the rich countries like Australia and the USA, inequality was falling until the 1970s and the benefits of economic growth were widely dispersed. Since about 1980, though, we've had neoliberalism and much of that has been reversed. And the benefits of growth have gone to the richest people in the richest countries. And you can kind of see that on the right hand side. Very few of the benefits have gone to people in sub-Saharan Africa. You can see the lines for the United States and Australia for income per capita have uh, um, steeply increased over time. We've had a lot of economic growth in our countries over the last 50 or 70 years. But particularly in recent decades, the benefits of that have got to the, gone to the top 1% or the top few percent. So we have been pushing our economy beyond our planetary boundaries, well beyond our planetary boundaries in some respects. Without the benefits of doing this, being widely dispersed widely shared so we can see who has pushed our planet past its planetary boundaries and it's up to us in the rich countries
0: to fix it and we're rapidly running out of time so would you say this means like are you saying we have to shrink the economy is this a recipe for cutting back and going to austerity
1: no or not necessarily It means we urgently need to shift our focus away from the growthism, growth for growth's sake, of modern capitalism. In the short run, we'll need to use up some of our remaining ecological budget to make the investments in green infrastructure around the world, which will push us towards the donor. And both nationally and globally, we'll need to radically change the distribution of income and wealth, and many things people at the moment take for granted about the role of government, the way the economy works, and the purpose of economic activity. We have to challenge the mainstream in all these areas. This is where that third economist, Mariana Mazzucato's mission economy is relevant to the story. Because it's not just about those politicians who understand the challenges we're facing winning elections. It's also about building up the capacity of the public service to be able to carry out what needs to be done. This doesn't mean a shift to central planning. It doesn't mean the elimination of markets or that people won't still work in private businesses and even large corporations. But it does mean government taking the lead in making the investments and setting a regulatory framework to lead the private sector towards a safe and just future. Yeah. In the short run, this will probably involve further growth in GDP. In the long run though, I don't believe in the infinite growth of GDP, which if it was to continue growing world GDP at 3% per annum would mean in 250 years time, the economy would be a thousand times as big as it is at the moment. I mean, that's just unimaginable. It's
0: it's one of those things, isn't it? Just unbelievable.
1: Well, that's what I think anyway. Hmm. And I believe we should stop using GDP as an indicator of economic success. We need to change. Our higher goal. The reasons for this and the possible use of something like the genuine progress indicator or GPI as a more useful indicator of the impact of economic activity on our well-being is something we might talk about with the famous ecological economist Phil Lorne who will first meet in three weeks from now. Meanwhile to meet the greatest challenge humans have ever had to meet collectively It's essential we have the right model of the economy and the appropriate role for currency issuing governments within the economy. Of course, without modern monetary theory, I don't believe we can deliver what ecological economists and scientists are rightly screaming for us to do. Without an ecological perspective, understanding MMT is pointless though. Who cares about dollars on a dead planet?
0: Yeah,
1: so true. In two weeks' time, we'll talk with a movie producer, Maren Poitras, who is midway through making a movie about modern monetary theory called Finding the Money. And before that, next week, we'll talk about MMT and sustainability with the president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, Fadel Kabou. How can people get in touch with us, Gabby, in the meantime?
0: well um i think uh probably the the easiest way to reach both of us is via email if you would like to send us an email it's info at modernmoneylab.org.au and um, that will reach us um, you can also message us via um, our old Facebook page that um, Stephen, you started this page quite a while ago, but we've still got it going. It's called Modern Monetary Theory MMT: Economics for Sustainable Prosperity. So we're sort of both keeping an eye on that page. And but if you're on Twitter, both of us love um, hanging out on Twitter. Um, Stephen's handle is at Stephen Hale Oz. And that's S T E V E N H I A I L A U S. And my handle is at Gabby Bond, G-A-B-I-E-B-O-N-D. So, yeah, send us a message. We would love to chat to you and um, uh, tell you about the work that we're doing. Um, I'm not sure if we have time to go uh, through more about um, Kate Roworth's Um, seven ways to think like a 21st century economist today, but um, because it looks like we're out of time, but perhaps we can save that for another show. Um, Yeah, so uh, Stephen, do you want to say anything before we wrap up?
1: Uh, No, not not really. We will come back to talk about um, the elements of uh, Kate's book because, yes, she discusses seven ways in which we need to change our approach to... Doing economics and thinking about economic issues if we're going to build the kind of society that I'm sure most of us want to build in the future which is a just society where, where people have the best possible opportunity of living a secure dignified life um, where um, people are not faced with uh, the threat of uh, unemployment poverty, homelessness, where we can meet the requirements of the social foundations which, which line up as the uh, inner ring of Kate's Donut, but where we bring ourselves rapidly back in the next few years. And really, we only have a few years to do this before mm. it becomes very, very difficult um, within our planetary boundaries, not just for carbon dioxide emissions, but for those other planetary boundaries as well. But I guess that takes us to the end of our first show. I hope you've enjoyed Modern Money Donuts, and we very much hope you'll join us again at the same time next week to talk with leading economist, Professor Fadel Kaboub about MMT and sustainability. Let me just mention that in a few minutes time, Joe Firestone's show will be coming up at least uh, well in, in the next half an hour. So there's more content on soon. But meanwhile, uh, we'll be uh, talking, as I said, to Fadel next time. The week after that, to the movie producer, Maren Poitras. The week after that, to the famous ecological economist, Phil Lawn. And I hope you'll join us for future episodes of Modern Money Donuts. See you next time.
0: Thank you for listening.
1: Thanks very much.